this morning we're delighted to go through Acts 21 verses 1 through 40. And I've titled this, Paul Arrives in Jerusalem. So a little background here to, to this chapter. In the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, Luke recorded events that occurred in the first local ecclesia in Jerusalem. During this time, the early disciples were learning about the kingdom of God, given the revelation that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Then in Acts 8, the message of Jesus was taken to Judea and Samaria. Then in Acts 10, the revelation was taken to the Gentiles through a Roman centurion named Cornelius who lived in Caesarea. This fulfilled the prophecy of Acts 1.8, that Jesus' richest disciples would be witnesses of his resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So by Acts 10, Acts 1.8 had been fulfilled. Paul now was not one of the original apostles, began his apostolic work in Acts 13 and Acts 14. That was his first journey. They were sent out of Antioch and they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit and by the, the church leaders there in Antioch to do that work. After they completed their work, there was an interlude. There was a church council, the first church council. It was in Acts 15. That's the record of it. And this, the question that was addressed was the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Exactly how is this to connect? The conclusion was a step forward. It was a step forward in terms of, uh, of some clarity on grace, but it wasn't unequivocal. The Gentiles did not have to become Jews to become Christians. Well, that's good. That's a step forward. But the good news of the grace of God was muddled. And there were four stipulations attached to this. Abstinence from food offered to idols, abstinence from blood, abstinence from strangled meat, and abstinence from sexual immorality. So it was grace plus four stipulations. That is not a clear gospel. And ultimately, Paul would straighten all this out and give us the most clear presentation of the gospel of grace in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But here, in, in, in the progress of the early ecclesia growing in this understanding of what the good news was, there's still not clarity on it, but increasingly, they're seeing more of the truth. Now, Paul then took this truth, even though it was not profound in Acts 15, and he launched his second journey built on that truth. Then in the, the third journey in chapter 19, he started that journey. He continued to build on that truth. So the purity of the gospel of grace became clearer and clearer over time. Now, Acts 21 now is a record of, of what's coming next. You see, what's coming next now is a period of time, roughly one-third of the book, devoted to the Apostle Paul's conversion to Christ. And the way he came to Christ is he was intercepted. He didn't choose Christ. He was not seeking Christ. He did not want Christ. Yet Christ intercepted him, and he was he brought he was came to he came to Christ without wanting to come to Christ. I think that's the best way to say it. Which is so foreign to us. We're used to thinking that people have to want that. No, they just have to be intercepted. When they're intercepted, then things change. So the rest of the book, starting with Acts twenty one to Acts twenty eight, is Paul's apologetic for about his encounter with Christ, how he came to Christ. Twice in this section of the at the end of the book, we're going to see him talk about that, 
that event where he came to Christ is recorded first in Acts 9. It'll be recorded. Another presentation of it will be Acts 22 and over in Acts 24. So clearly Paul is going to great extent to clarify this event that was the pivot point. And we need to be looking at that event and asking exactly what is prescriptive about that event. Because Paul is the one in Romans 10 that tells us the importance of preaching proclamation of the message. And how can people hear if they don't have someone proclaiming the message? He tells us that seems to be a normative pattern, but yet that's not how he came to Christ. So trying to piece this together and understand what is really prescriptive versus what is just descriptive is the challenge of looking at the event. And I think that's one of the reasons we have the event recorded three times. But Acts 21 is the lead up to the first time where he's going to present this outside of Acts 9. He'll present it in Acts 20, 22. But today we'll lead look at the, the prelude to Acts 22, which is Acts 21. So let's just dig into this and see what the Apostle Paul has to share with us now. So the first movement here, there are three movements in this section, Acts 1 through 14. This is a movement which I've titled Warnings. It's also got fellowship in it. And as Paul is journeying from Miletus, he goes through a number of cities and he always tries to fellowship with the Christians, where whoever he finds there. But along the way, he's going to get some warnings. So let's take a look at what happens. Verse 1, after we tore ourselves away from them, this is Paul and his traveling party, which included Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. They left Miletus, and obviously it was a very hard departure because they were so close to the elders from Ephesus, and they were they, they hated that. Paul had told them, you're not going to see me again. This is it. It's a goodbye forever. So it was a very difficult goodbye. They set sail for cost the next day to Rhodes. And then they came to Patera, finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. And it says, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed seven days. So they stay a week here with the disciples. And while they're there, something happens. The middle of verse four says, through the spirit, and you'll notice the word spirit is capitalized, which means that the translators believed that this was a reference to the Holy Spirit. Through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You see, it was not just one person. It was a bunch of people that were convicted by the spirit that this is not going to go well for Paul in the natural. Keep in mind, that's the perspective. We always are trying to understand things with metaphysical awareness, which is seeing it from God's perspective, not just our human perspective. So it's going to be events there that could cause physical pain and physical injury, physical hardship, difficulty for the Apostle Paul. But all of this, you have to keep in mind, is going to be aligned with the will of God. That's where we have to be very clear. God is in the difficulty. He's always there. So through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And while our time, when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. So that was their week entire. Okay, when we completed our voyage with, uh, from Tyre, we landed at Ptolemus. 
and where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed there one day. And we don't have any more information about what happened there. And then verse 8, the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was a place where Cornelius lived. And some years before, this is the date of this particular event is probably somewhere in the early 60s. And the, 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 and Cornelius's uh, conversion to Christianity was probably at least 20 years prior. But, uh, you know, he, he probably wasn't there. There's no mention of him. We don't know if he was or not. And we don't know if the people even knew much about him. You know, 20 years is a long time and we tend to forget. But Caesarea was a pivot point city in spreading the message of the good news in the early days. So here Paul arrives here and he entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now, Philip the Evangelist was one of the seven that was selected to solve the problem of food distribution that's recorded in Acts 6. Now, that was a very interesting incident because there you see, you see the early, the first local ecclesia had some, some dysfunction, had some problems. And the, the apostles realized that their call was to teaching the word and they needed to find the call, the people who are called by God to solve those problems of food distribution. So they told the people, all the, the community of believers, the, all the Christians, they said, look out from among you. In other words, God, God's provision to meet needs will be from among you. Look out from among you and select seven men. And he gives them the C4 principle as the basis for selecting the seven men and appoint them. That's commission them, ordain these men to the ministry, to the diaconia of food distribution. And so when when they did that and they put that that part of the community that was out of order was put in order through kingdom work, it said that the, the community's growth accelerated and even some of the most difficult people to bring to Christ came to Christ. It's a pretty phenomenal text. But Philip was one of those men who was part of that incident, part of that that period of time. Of course, Stephen was another one. He would go on to become the first martyr. The first Christian martyr was a marketplace man, a man whose diaconia was in the marketplace. It was not a church leader. So Philip had a lot of depth of experience and knowledge and understanding. He was living in Caesarea. He's hosting now the traveling party with Paul. And he has a man, he's a man, verse 9, that had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And after we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came up from Judea. Now, this is the second time we've seen Agabus in the book of Acts. He he showed up in Acts 11 when he went down to to, uh, Antioch to predict a famine. And when he did that, the people in Antioch gathered around him and they took up a collection and sent money back to the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, to support them and help them. So he was used of God to predict what was going to happen and to get aid for the, the Christian community. Well, here he is again coming down from Jerusalem some 20 years later, and he's got another prophecy. So verse 11, he came to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So now we have it. 
it's not just the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. So we have a more explicit reference to the Holy Spirit. And this is the word. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the Gentiles. Well, the man who owns the belt is the Apostle Paul. And he's prophetically telling him what has been told to him in multiple places and times that going to Jerusalem, like he intended to do, is going to lead to his incarceration. It's going to be difficult. It's interesting that Agabus follows the Old Testament pattern of using physical gestures to try to communicate. This happened many times in the Old Testament. Some of the ones you're probably familiar with are, for example, like Elijah dividing the waters of the Jordan by smiting it with a mantle. You know, or Elisha throwing salt into a spring to bring healing to bitter waters. So physical gestures to to predict and prophesy something was a common Old Testament practice. So that's what Agabus did here. And so the Jewish people, the people that knew the Jewish customs would have recognized this, and this would have been very acceptable for them. Verse 12, when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So you see more, they're making more, more insistence to Paul, please don't do this. This is not going to go well for you in the natural. But Paul is not concerned about the natural. He's concerned about obeying God. In Acts 20, he said, I'm constrained to go to Jerusalem, even though I'm being warned on every front that it's not going to go well for me in the natural. But I must do it. It is what God has called me to. You've, you've got to get to see here that Paul is constrained by calling first and foremost, not by physical circumstances. We've got to learn how to live that way. That's living with metaphysical awareness. Paul has a very interesting response here in verse 13. It's almost sarcastic. He says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's an amazing statement. Now, he's speaking this probably in the early 60s. In a few years, he's going to write his epistle to the Philippians from Rome. And in that epistle, he says something that is very similar to this. He said in, in verse chapter 1, verse 21 of Philippians, For me to live is Christ and die as gain. Now, I, I, I can't help but believe that at that point, when he's in the Roman jail, and he is writing this letter to the Philippians, he's very persuaded that physical life is nothing compared to being in the presence of Christ. And as long as I have breath in my body, there's reason for my being, and it is here to serve Christ. Physical life is first and more foremost about serving Christ. We've commented this morning about how to recognize what God is really doing in your family or in your friends or in your local Christian community. And don't think because people are having a relatively comfortable, easy time that that's good. We tend to think everything's going well when we see through our natural eyes and it looks like it's going well in the natural. That's not the measure. The measure is it goes well when we align with God. And sometimes that means suffering and pain. In fact, more likely than not, the Holy Spirit's working with somebody when they're in suffering and pain and working less with somebody when they're comfortable. So we've got to get God's metric here. Paul is not 
He, he is on the process of really getting clear about this, I think, at this point in Acts 21. By the time of Philippians 1, I think he's very clear. <clears throat> he's always sarcastically saying, you're breaking my heart and weeping. I'm ready to go and be bound and to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. But you're going to see as we go through some of the incidents that happened that maybe Paul is a little not little hesitant on this. You know, he's a little unsure, but I think by the time he gets to Philippians 1, he's settled. Since he would not be persuaded, verse 20, verse 14, we said no more. We said no more except this. And this is a good place to go. When you've issued the warning that you believe God's called you to issue to someone, then and they refuse to receive it, then you should say the Lord's will be done. That's a good thing to say. Good way to go. All right, so let's go on. Now, the next movement is about fear. This is where I'm making the point that I don't think Paul was fully, fully understanding what he wrote in Philippians 121 at this point. I think he was getting a glimpse of it, but I think there was still room for fear. And I think he's going to show up here. So Paul meets with the elders in Jerusalem. And among other things, you'll see the gospel message is still not clear. And you're going to see maybe a little fear in Paul. So let's just take a look at this text. After this, we got ready and we went to Jerusalem. So now they're going from Caesarea to Jerusalem at some 65 miles. It's uphill. So it's they're going uphill. I don't know how, how steep it was, but it was obviously a walk. There are some people that believe he was maybe on an animal, a horse or something. That's possible. Along the way, or when he got to Jerusalem, this isn't clear, he, he arrives at the home of Nason. Now, Nason is a, the name Nason means remember. He's a man from Cyprus, like Barnabas. He is an early, early disciple. Now, I want to point out to you that the word early there is a word that's rooted in the word RK. It's a derivative of the word RK. RK means the ruler, chief ruler, or source, or starting point. The RK is basically where everything begins. Jesus was the RK for the universe. In the beginning was the RK. So Jesus is the the ultimate RK. There are a lot of sub-RKs that flow from him. So this is a reference to a believer who has been in the faith a long time. He's part of the original, probably part of the original church in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm speculating there. I don't know that. But most likely he was part of the early believers, very experienced, very seasoned. It's good to go be around seasoned people, particularly when you're getting, to go, you're getting ready to go into a test. And Paul was very much getting ready for that. So he stops in and he spends some time there. We don't know how long. But he stayed there for a while. Then verse 17, when we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. That's wonderful. In this community, there are a lot of Jews and there are some who have come to Christ. The the Christian community is there. It's where the first ecclesia was birthed on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2. So we reached Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now, we don't know exactly who these are. James is probably a reference to the brother of Jesus. He is called James the Lesser sometimes. Uh, James the Greater, or the the James of the Peter, James, and John, uh, was already been martyred. He was martyred. That's recorded in Acts 12. He was the first church leader who was martyred. 
but he was not the first martyr. That was Stephen, who was a, the marketplace leader. So they come, they greet him. And after they go through some formalities, greeting, I'm sure they ask each other how they were doing all those kinds of things. <clears throat> then what it says there in verse 19, Paul reported in detail what God had done among the ethnos. That's, <clears throat> that's translated Gentiles. Ethnos means ethnic groups. Uh, the word ethnos is sometimes translated nations. That's probably not a great translation for us. We kind of hear nations <clears throat> in terms of geography mainly. Uh, but ethnos, you know, the ethnic groups, they can be in different geographies. They're not, they're not limited to one geography. They may be primarily one geography, but they're not limited to it. So ethnos is the word. And it says there through his diakonia. See, Paul understood diakonia. Diakonia meant to execute the commands of Christ. Now, we have an English word that's become very distorted. It's the English word ministry. We use the word ministry, and we use it dualistically. And the scriptures do not use it dualistically. They use it holistically. So whatever your call is, <clears throat> you have a call to execute the commands of Christ, and you're assigned a context. So in Acts 6, you saw there were two contexts. There was a call to execute the commands of Christ in teaching scripture, and there was a call to executing the commands of Christ in food distribution. Both of them were calls of God. They were diakonia, and different men had different calls. So that's important to keep that in mind as you, anytime you see that word diakonia in scripture. So the, the Jewish leaders, they listened. They heard what he had to say. They glorified God and said, now notice what they're going to say. They're not going to talk about the ethnos. They're going to talk about Jews. So they thank the Lord. And then they said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. Now, as far as we know, Paul didn't talk about the Jews. He talked about the ethnos. But the Jews respond by talking about the Jews, which is quite interesting. And then he said, they go on to say, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, the grammar here is quite interesting, too, because the word that's used, that's translated, are, is not the normal word to be. You know, that's what you would expect it would be. That would be me. That is not the word that's used. It's a different word. It's a word that implies someone that is, is governed by the first things, the first principles. And so it, this implies they're governed by scripture because back then scripture was the first things, hands down, everybody respected scripture. Now today we're living in such a pagan time, that's not true. Not and a lot of people not, not in the professing Christian world don't even respect scripture. But back then, even the pagans respected scripture. And so these people, he's talking about these Jews that have come to Christ, they believe on, on him being the, the Lord in Christ of Acts 2.36, they're zealous for the law because they are governed by first things, by the word of God. It's a really strong way to make this point. Verse 21, but they have been informed about you, that you are teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles, the ethnos, to abandon Moses. That word abandon means to, we get the word apostate from it. It's to separate yourself. Separate yourself from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or to live, that is, have a lifestyle according to their customs. <clears throat> so what is to be done? Now, obviously, this is not what Paul is teaching. He's being misunderstood. 
He's been wrongly accused, wrongly characterized, wrongly presumed to be doing things he's not doing. So these Jews are concerned about this. They're concerned about their fellow Jews. The Jews that are Christians are concerned about the Jews who are not Christians and how they're going to respond to Paul. So what is to be done? Well, they will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. So they're going to concoct a scheme that they think in some way is going to help Apostle Paul deal with this really difficult situation. So they say, we have four men who made a vow. Verse 24, take these men, purify them along with yourself, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what you have told, what you, what were, they were told about you amounts to nothing, but the, you are yourselves very careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles, now the Jewish leaders, Jewish Christian leaders, talk you back to the Gentiles. Now they're going to get back and reveal that they're still not clear on the gospel of grace. They're still stuck in the church council's ruling that was recorded in Acts 15. Paul, I think, has gotten increasingly clear about the gospel of grace, and he's having to accommodate the misunderstanding of this gospel as he's dealing with these, these church leaders. And he says, with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, offered to idols, from blood, from strangled things, and from sexual immorality before stipulations. It was grace plus these four abstinences. So that's where Paul is, again, he's accommodating. I think at this point he's gotten very clear, about, and he does not mention these abstinences. He does not include that in what he does any longer. I don't believe he does. But that, yet he's got to deal with these church leaders that are not quite where he is. So the final movement here is chaos is going to come. Paul accommodates them. Uh, perhaps he was a little fearful. That's one of the reasons I'm wondering where he was and really getting to the place of Philippians 121, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. I'm not sure he was fully there. Verse 26. So on the next day, Paul took the men, these four men, <clears throat> having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days, when the offering would be made to each of them. When the seven days were nearly over. See, they went through this whole week of purification, doing all the ritual. He's getting ready to go through paying their expenses. So everybody will think he is he's following the law. He shows that he follows the law. Well, the Jews, the Jews who oppose Christ are not buying it. So when the seven days are over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple and stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people. A little hyperbole there. Uh, whenever you see everyone or everywhere or you see all, you have to ask yourself, is this all without exception or all without distinction? Because many times it's all without distinction, meaning it. They're, 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 it's not literally all without exception. It, there are a few times it's all without exception. Mostly it's all without distinction. So he's, he, this is trying to, they're using this with hyperbole to say, you know, all kinds of people and situations and scenarios and every place he goes, this is what he teaches. That's what they're trying to say. Teaches our people, our law and our place. He's teaching against this. What's more, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. Now, the reason that they're saying that is they have made a presupposition. 
that they've assumed something that is not true. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. They apparently knew he was of the ethnic group. He was an Ephesian. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed in. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. They shut him out of the temple, and now they're going to try to kill him. Verse 31, as they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander. Now, the commander is a, a, is a military officer in charge of a 1,000 soldiers, which means he probably has 10 centurions underneath him. Each centurion has 100 soldiers. So this, this, this uh, commander of the regiment over Jerusalem, he was hearing that Jerusalem was all was in chaos. All Jerusalem, again, is this all without exception, all without distinction, probably all without distinction, all parts. It's impacting all the parts, but it doesn't mean that everyone in Jerusalem was in chaos. The ones that are opposing Paul and Christ are, they're confused. That's what happened. When you start opposing Christ, you will be confused about life. You won't you won't be able to keep your story straight. You'll make bad presuppositions. You will, pres- you will assume things that are incorrect. These are things that we have to recognize are symptoms of rebellion against Christ. Verse 32. So taking along soldiers and centurions, this, uh, this commander, uh, he immediately ran down to them. <clears throat> seeing, seeing the commander and the soldiers, that is, the Jews stopped beating Paul. They saw the, the army coming. Here comes the cavalry. So they stopped beating him. Verse 33. Then he asked, the, the commander approached, taking him, Paul, into custody, ordered him to be bound by two chains. He asked who he was. So he's saying, Paul, who are you? And what have you done? He doesn't know who this guy Paul is. He doesn't have a clue who he is. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. You see, there's chaos and confusion all around. You can't get your story straight. Since he was not able to get reliable information, so thank the Lord the commander was looking for truth. He couldn't get it. Because of the uproar and the disorder, he ordered them to be ordered Paul to be taken back to the barracks. That's where he could be safe. So Paul got to the steps and he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Chaos. For the masses of the people followed yelling, get rid of him. Verse 37, as he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He obviously spoke in Greek because the commander understood him. He replied, you know how to speak Greek? The question, rhetorical question meaning, yes, he knew. And then he goes on to say, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? You see, he had assumed that that he had, he had kind of identified this guy, Paul, in his own mind as being this, this, this rebel. And Paul said, no, I'm not that guy. Verse 39, he says, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. Verse 40, after he'd been given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hands to the people, again, Gestures were part of how things were communicated, you know, in the Jewish tradition. And then there was a hush because he addressed them in Aramaic. Aramaic, as I understand it, is 
a form of Hebrew that's been impacted by the ethnic groups. So it's kind of, it's not pure Hebrew, it's kind of a watered down Hebrew, but it's probably a language that Jesus spoke and Paul did as well. So that commanded attention. When the, the Jewish people heard Aramaic, not Greek, they suddenly they're going to listen. And then in verse 22, or chapter 22, we'll see what he says next time. But what I want to do to wrap up on this teaching is to have a, a comment on some theology and an application. So I want to talk about the theology of suffering, one of the favorite topics that we all have. Everybody loves the topic of suffering. But, you know, one of probably one of the greatest markers of the work of God in any life is pain and suffering. Because what we want in the natural is we want no pain, no suffering. We want comfort and convenience. But God wants to transform us and to, to get us to the place where we are open to that. Many times he has to put us in the pain to humble us. So what is uh, what what can we learn about the theology of suffering for Christ? Well, from his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul knew that his divine calling included suffering for the name of Christ. He was told that. Listen to these words from Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for this man Saul is my chosen instrument to take my name to the ethnic, ethnic groups and to kings and even to the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He must suffer. It isn't that he didn't get to suffer. He must suffer. I mean, when you think about that, that's probably true of all of us. There are things we must suffer. We need to suffer for the purpose of God, not only to transform us, but to use us to serve his purpose in others. Paul reminded his spiritual son, Timothy, of the persecution he endured on his first apostolic journey. On his very first journey, recorded in Acts 13 and 14, he gets stoned and left for dead. And notice what he said here in, Acts, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, about that incident. Timothy, you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. That was his first journey. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. The reason the Lord rescues us now, it's not because he wants to spare us of death. It's because he has another purpose. We have a purpose for us to continue to live. That's why for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Furthermore, Paul recognized that the persecution, any persecution, was part of the process of being a disciple and growing as a disciple. He spoke the following to his, his disciples in Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. Now, this again is on his first apostolic journey. Paul has been left for dead, but he wasn't dead. He got up and he continued on with Barnabas and they preached in the town of Derby and they made disciples there. Then they returned. They started a return journey. In other words, once they finished the journey, they had to go back. So they returned back through the places where they had visited and actually had made some disciples. And they returned to Lystra, Iconium and to Antioch strengthening disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them something. This is what he said. Listen to this. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's not something we normally share with people. That's not a refrigerator verse. It's not a popular verse because we're not into suffering and pain. 
And it's not that we're masochists. We are not that. But we recognize how God works. It is necessary because God uses that to chisel on us and transform us. And he uses it to touch others through our lives. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he recognized that suffering for the name of Jesus was a gift like faith in Jesus is a gift. He said in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And even in the final phase of his life, Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, fully aware that he would suffer for Christ. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said in these words, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled. That word compelled means to be bound. I am bound like I'm a prisoner. I have no other choice. I'm compelled by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will I encounter there, except that in every town, in other words, this is literally every town, or is it just, is it all without distinction? It All without distinction tells me it's common. It's frequent. It happens on a routine basis. So in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace without stipulation. God's grace without stipulation. I'm adding without stipulation. I think that's where he was in his own understanding of the good news. Suffering for Jesus is the lot of every Christian, as Paul told his son Timothy. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The truth is congruent with the words of Jesus to his disciples in John 15, 20, where he said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Finally, James, the brother of Jesus, stated that Christians were to rejoice. Yeah, it gets better. You're supposed to rejoice. Count it all joy when you have trials and tribulations, knowing that God will use these circumstances to purify you. This was James 1, verses 2 through 4. The testimony of scripture is that suffering for Christ is part of being a Christian. In fact, Peter stated that part of the call, listen to this, part of the call of every Christian, according to 1 Peter 2.21, is to suffer for living righteously, just as Jesus did. Jesus suffered, though he did no wrong. He suffered for righteousness. We are called to that. That's exactly how Peter phrases it. To this we were called. So let me give you a word of application. But the title of this application is Living Constrained to One's Calling. In his book, The Call, Os Guinness points out that if there is a sense of personal calling, this implies a caller. Notwithstanding the assertion of present-day existential philosophy that humans can self-define their purpose, it is self-evident that no one self-creates. If one does not self-create, then one cannot self-call. Belief in personal calling presumes a belief in a transcendent personal caller, outside or separate from that person. From a Christian worldview, the caller is the God of the Bible who is the God of creation. So given the sovereign, intentional, strategic, self-revealing creator of the Bible, the Bible states that everyone exists for a purpose and is called to serve that divinely ordained and divinely defined purpose. 
This is the abundant testimony of scripture. For example, consider some texts like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, which says this, the Lord made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. This appears to be a case where the word all means all without exception, not all without distinction, all without exception. And then Romans 9, 21 says, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Speaking of God's sovereignty and his sovereign pleasure in creating peoples as he wishes to serve whatever purpose he has for each one. And we, we look at that and say, that doesn't sound fair. You know, it's not like no one has a choice. And the reality is we don't have a choice. And then when we start saying God's not fair, we're presuming that we have the right to even ask the question. And in fact, Paul's response to that question when it's posed in Romans 9 is to say, who are you to question God? What right do you have to question the Almighty? We have no standing to even ask the question. That's the humble position is to realize we are the creature and we are so below God. We have no right to question his purposes and his will, his ways, his goodness, his pleasure. Those are his sovereign prerogative. We have no right to question that. Furthermore, Jesus lived for the singular intent to fulfill his call. He said this in John 6, 38, that he had come down from heaven not to do his will, but the will of him who sent him. That is the will of the Father. Even in his weakest moment facing physical death, Jesus was singularly committed to live according to the will of God. He spoke these words in a prayer. He said, Father, if you're willing to take this cup away from me, in other words, don't, don't make me die. Give me grace to spare me from death. He said this, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In the Apostle Peter's opening message to the first Christians on the day of Pentecost, he spoke of the intent and purpose of God in the life of Jesus. He said in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And the intent and purpose of God was seen in the life of the Apostle Paul, who was intercepted by Jesus, though he did not choose to follow Jesus and was not seeking Jesus, but rather opposing him. Nevertheless, God captured him. He intercepted him. He constrained him. And so what Paul does when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he explains verses 22 through 24 of chapter 20. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem compelled by the spirit. I have no choice. I must do this, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the diakonia, that is the work that I have been assigned to do to execute it according to the will and ways of God and the timing of God for the glory of God. These things I've received from the Lord Jesus and therefore to testify 
to the good news of God's grace. If Paul lived constrained by the will of God, should this not be be also prescriptive for each Christian? Could there be any place for man's will to trump God's will? The testimony of scripture is clear. Jesus and his apostles agreed. There is no other proper way to live except constrained to find and fulfill one's divinely ordained calling. May we have the conviction and the grace to live as the apostle Paul did, compelled by the spirit, driven to do the will of God according to the ways of God in the time of God for the glory of God for no other purpose than being faithful servants of Christ. That is the right way to live. That's the way to a meaningful life. That is the only road to success. May we learn to so live in Jesus' name. Amen.